Well, as our uh, Cactus Campus and then our venue and our chapel and those watching online join us for our time in the Word, uh, let's all bow together and pray. Father God, uh, there's a lot to pray about in this world of ours and in this culture of ours. It's been a crazy week, and though we're comforted by the fact that what happened this week in Las Vegas and all the other things going on in our country do not surprise you, they sure surprise us. And so, God, our prayers are lifted up on a regular basis, hopefully for all of us daily, as we think of those who are in mourning, those who are in grief, uh, those who don't understand uh, how there can be so much pain and suffering in this world. And uh, Lord, as Christians, as followers of your son Jesus, we know that you have said to us this is a fallen world in which people make terrible choices, even evil choices. Uh, as they are separated from you. And we want to talk about that today, God, and what you want to do about that. So give us hope, uh, give us joy, lift our sights beyond the crud going on in our culture today to you, uh, the author and giver of life, and the one who offers us salvation through your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus's name, and we all say together, amen. Well, I think one of the things that you and I probably both love in life is what we're going to call a good search and rescue story. I, I think we all love that. There's just something about a, a heroic, true-to-life rescue story that does something to the human spirit. Quite frankly, it gives us hope. It lifts us up. Uh, this is going to date me a little bit, but back in the 1980s, so shortly after I became a Christian, there was a very famous story that was all over the news about a little 18-month-old toddler named Jessica McClure. You might remember the story. She lived down in Texas, and she had crawled down an 8-inch well pipe and gotten stuck there. And, and they had no idea how to get her out. And so rescue workers worked for 58 hours. Can you imagine that? 58 hours. And finally freed her. We were all glued to the news for those 58 hours. And it was an amazing search and rescue story with a very positive end. Even during 9-11, as much as that was a tragedy in our nation, I can still remember watching the news after 9-11, and there were people who were buried in the rubble for days, and then they would find them, the rescue workers would, and it would lift our spirits even in the midst of that tragedy. You and I love a good search and rescue story with Harvey and Irma just recently, the hurricanes. We've heard stories of people who were rescued from that terrible, terrible tragedy. And just this idea of somebody being in trouble or somebody being lost only to be found alive and to be found well, it does something for the human spirit. And if you can relate to this at all today, and I think that you can, then here's what I need you to know as we dive into this new series we're starting today. God joins you in loving good search and rescue stories. In fact, we're going to see over the next few weeks, he invented the concept. The reason that you love good search and rescue stories is because you're made in his image. You don't like this fallen world any more than he does. And whenever we can go against the grain of this fallen world and see search and rescue happen, we love it. And we love it because God loves it. When Jesus was on this earth, he used words like these all the time. He used words like lost, seek, find, save. They were a huge part of his vocabulary and his worldview. 
And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks here at Scottsdale Bible is explore this idea of God being all about search and rescue. Because what I'm going to show you is that God thinks and feels constantly in terms of search and rescue. It is absolutely core to his mindset and core to his agenda for this world. Now, there are many parts of the Bible that talk about God's vision or even God's actions of search and rescue. From Genesis to Revelation, there are tons of stories about how God is on an all-out search to rescue lost ones. But there is one particular chapter in the New Testament found in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15, in which the entire chapter are Jesus' words, almost the entire chapter. So if you have a red letter edition, it's like all red. And there are three stories in this chapter that are all about God's heart and God's plan for searching and rescuing in this world. And so we're going to spend the next three weeks in one chapter of the Bible, Luke chapter 15. And so if you brought a Bible here today, you're going to want to open up to there. And we're going to park there for the next three weeks. If you're on your phone, open up there, Luke chapter 15. If you didn't, that's okay. We'll put it up here on the screen as I always do. Now, all you need to know about the setting of Luke chapter 15, and this will propel us into these three stories that Jesus is going to tell, is that Jesus is talking to, now watch this, a bunch of stodgy, cynical, religious naysayers. Not that there are people like that today, but they did exist back then. Uh, There were people that were really religious in life. They went to church all the time. They were those who were believers. And yet over time, they had gotten cynical, ingrown, angry, and stodgy. I joked about it. There's a lot of them today too. And they existed back then as well. And Jesus is about ready to take them on over a huge issue. Let's read about it in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him, Jesus, to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You got to grab what's going on here. Obviously, there's two main groups here, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of Jesus's day. They were the pastors of Jesus's day for our purposes today. And then the tax gatherers and the sinners. The tax gatherers were basically IRS agents back then. And they were about as loved as they are today. And, and so, you know, not, not the most loved people in, in all of culture. And back then, they were also very, very, very dishonest. They were out for their own personal gain. It wasn't a very highly regulated tax system back then. And so there were a lot of abuses. And so tax gatherers were dumped together with sinners. Sinners almost surely means prostitutes, swindlers, people who steal, people who murder. Let that sink in a minute. These were the people Jesus is hanging out with. So it would be like if this week you saw me going into some seedy bar or something like that, you might scratch your head and go, I wonder what Rasmussen is going in there for. And if you're not careful, you might make a judgment upon my life. Not that any of you would do that, but you might make a judgment upon my life that I'm not going in there to win souls, that I might be going in there to to do nasty things, sinful things. And that's what's happening here. 
Jesus is hanging around all these dregs of society and the religious people are going, you don't hang around with people like that and they're indicting him for doing that. And Jesus is about to take them on when it comes to this issue. And he's going to do so by telling them three stories. We're going to read the first story today, and then we're going to explore the other two in the weeks ahead. So let's read the first of three stories that Jesus tells to answer why it is he hangs around the people he does. It says, and he, Jesus, told them, the Pharisees and the scribes, this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Three things that I want you to notice Jesus is telling us here about God and this world. Three things that I promise you have everything to do with you and the world around you and the Lord that you serve. So first, notice with me that Jesus is telling us here unequivocally that God attaches great value to what is lost. That if anything in his creation, meaning an organic thing, a person is lost, God attaches great value to that. How do we know this? Well, it says in verse 4, Jesus says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them? A hundred sheep and has lost one of them. Now, back then when Jesus told that story, they knew right away what he was getting at. They knew right away what he meant by saying 100 sheep and losing one of them. You and I, because we don't live in an agricultural society and because we have animals that are pets, need to do a little history lesson to understand this. You see, there was a time in the history of the world where people didn't have animals because they were pets. They had animals for their livelihood. They had animals because they wanted to eat them. They had animals because they needed a field to be plowed. They had animals because they needed milk. And they didn't have animals as pets. They had animals because their very lives depended on it. And we know for a fact that in Jesus' day in Middle Eastern culture about 2,000 years ago, the average family needed anywhere between 5 and 15 animals just to stay alive, again, for milk or to plow fields or for meat. And so when somebody owned 100 sheep, everybody back then knew what that meant, that these sheep were this guy's way of making a living. They were an investment that he was eventually going to shear or kill or sell, do something to provide for his family. And so each one had great value. And did you notice that Jesus says these were his sheep? This shepherd is not some hired hand. He's not a subcontractor. He's not watching somebody else's sheep. They were his and he values them as his and his alone. And so when Jesus says that he lost one of them, immediately in their minds they'd be thinking, well, this is not good. This is one one-hundredth at the very least of this guy's wealth, and it's valuable to him. And we know that he probably most likely didn't lose the sheep. 
Sheep are dumb, insecure, they need a shepherd, and so most likely this sheep had strayed, and yet it is, as a result of that, lost. So let's now put this all together since you have that little history lesson behind this. Here's what we know that Jesus is getting at in this parable because he tells us in verse seven what he's getting at. The shepherd of the sheep here obviously symbolizes who? You can say it with me. God. Our, our, our kids in Sunday school would have gotten that. So let's try that again. The, the shepherd of the sheep, because he's called the great shepherd of the sheep in other parts of the Bible, is, say it with me, God. So that's important to understand. The sheep here represent almost surely humanity, or at the very least, a portion of humanity. There have been differing views for 2,000 years on what these sheep represent. The early church saw the 99 sheep as the angels and the one lost sheep as all of humanity. Not a bad view. Uh, the reformers saw the sheep as a whole as the human race with some of them lost and some of them found. Uh, there are other views. Some people see the 99 sheep as Israel and the one lost sheep representing the Gentiles who would be included in under Jesus's blood. But here's the deal, gang. No matter what view you take of who the sheep represent, here's what they all agree upon, all the differing views. And that is that the lost sheep represents humanity, some portion of humanity that has not yet been found by God. God is the shepherd. The sheep represent lost ones who have not yet been found by God. And Jesus is about to tell us something very important about how God views lost ones. And the very first thing he's hinting to is that, is that God places great value on those who are lost. And so here's what this means for you and I before we move on to point two. And that is that you and your neighbor on both sides of your house and all your coworkers and everybody in your family, even the aunts and uncles that you don't like, and all the service providers that serve you, your clients, your customers that you know, your fellow students, if you're a student, here's the deal. All of them matter to God. Every one of them. Because if they are lost at all, and even if they're found, obviously they matter to God, if they are lost at all, God tells us, Jesus tells us, that he attaches great value to them, just like a shepherd who loses one sheep. And to add some theological grit to this, we know that the reason God values lost ones, now don't miss this, is because they're created in his image. You know, I pick on Howard Stern a lot. You guys ever notice that? Because he's like a poster child for decadence in our culture today. And he's like one of the most decadent guys I can think of. So when I want to make the point that humanity has gone down a decadent route, I usually pick on Howard Stern or Mick Jagger. And yet here's what you also need to know about Howard Stern. He matters greatly to God. God loves him. Jesus came for him. And the reason that he matters to God is because God made him and God made him in his image. Yes, he has strayed greatly as you have some people in your life who have strayed greatly, but don't ever let that fool you. God still cares deeply about lost people because they have great value in his sight. And before we move on, I just want you to latch onto that idea that even the people that drive you nuts around you are valued greatly, greatly 
by God. And he wants them to be found. You know, one of the things I love about this idea of being valued by God is that I don't think there is one of us here today that can't relate on a human level to this idea of being valued. You might have hit hard times right now in your life and might not feel worth very much, but my guess is, is that if you and I were having a cup of coffee today and I said, tell me about a time in the history of your life where you felt valued by another human being, almost all of us would talk about a parent or maybe a family member or a kid growing up, a dear friend growing up or your spouse right now or a neighbor or a church member. All of us have had an experience where we know what it's like to be valued. Outside of my wife, Kim, and my immediate family, one of the things that brings this home to me is when I think of the other churches that I have served. You know, it's hard when you leave a church because you realize, and this isn't bad, this is reality, but when you, when you leave a church, you realize that the vast majority of people loved you because you were their pastor, and now that you're not their pastor anymore, they're basically like the old Truman Show, like, what's next? You know, that, that's over, and, and, and what's the, the next thing for me? And, and, and I love how my buddy Strader says it. Tom Strader retired from the senior pastor of his church a few years ago, and he says, I immediately went from who's who to who's he. And, uh, and, and, and it's really true. In fact, this is a true story. He told me the other day he walked into his church, the church he started and founded, and somebody handed him a bulletin and said, welcome to redemption. Is this your first time here? <laughs> and he said, I, how quickly people forget, you know, and, and that, that's true. It happens. And so I've served three other churches in Detroit and then London, Ontario, and then my hometown in Cleveland. And uh, there are very few people that keep in touch with me anymore from those places, even though they loved me when I was there. But there are a few. In fact, there's only about one or two from each town I've served. And they got names, like John from Cleveland, and Dave from London, and Joe from Detroit. On a regular basis, they'll call me, they'll email me, they'll text me. Even though I'm not their pastor, even though, quite frankly, I'm no good to them anymore because I'm thousands of miles away and can't really help them with their difficulties, I realize that they value me and I feel valued by them. Have anybody like that in your life? I do. And here's what I want you to do with that. As you're thinking about a time when you felt valued, even right now maybe, I want you now to multiply that, now watch this, by a trillion times, multiply it by a trillion times, and now you're about one one-hundredth closer to understanding how much God values you. You see, the reason I know that is because theologians of old would say it this way, the creature can never have more compassion than the creator, amen? You and I are incapable, obviously, of loving and valuing somebody as much as God. Why? Because he's God and you're not. And so he has more love, more power, more goodness, and obviously his, his pinky than you'll have in your entire life. And so when God says, don't miss this gang, that he values you and that he values Howard Stern, he's not kidding. He means it. And that's what Jesus is trying to bring home here. Something of great value is loss. And the key word there is value. Not to put it too, uh, too clearly, but you're that one sheep that has strayed. And so is everybody else. And God attaches great value to what is lost. 
Now, this brings us to the second thing that we need to notice about Jesus' story here. And things are going to start to accelerate right now. I love this story because the second thing Jesus shows us is that God engages in an all-out search for what is lost. So he doesn't just value what is lost and say, gee, I value them, they're missing, I hope they come home someday. No, God engages in an all-out search for what is lost. So look at how the story continues in verse 4, and you'll get this. Jesus says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, now here it is, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So obviously three operative words here that I tried to emphasize as I read it to you. Leave, go, and finds. You latch onto those three words, you'll get the action here. The first thing you need to notice is that the shepherd leaves the 99. That's kind of a big deal. Commentators point out that he left the 99 in open pasture because what that means is, is that the sheep will be somewhat protected. They're protected in open pasture because they can see wolves and other animals coming from a distance and get away. But he nonetheless leaves the 99, which is a big deal. And then he goes after the one. A definite foreshadow of some of Jesus' last words to his disciples when he says that we are to go into all the world and make disciples. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep. And most surprising and amazing is that he does not stop his search until he finds the sheep, until he finds it. You see, that's why I said earlier, God's on an all-out search all the time for lost ones that he wants found. This is all over the Bible. Look at how the prophet would say it in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 16.9. The prophet says, for the eyes of the Lord, I love this, move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You see, this is God. His eyes are constantly moving to and fro throughout the earth uh, to try to see who might respond to his grace. That's the agenda and business of God. And folks, if you don't hear anything else today, latch on to where we are right now because what Jesus is showing us here is something about the heart and attitude of God toward a fallen and lost world. The fact that God has such a heart for every lost person in this world, everyone, that he engages in an all-out search. And that this is his number one agenda. This is his number one business on planet Earth. I like how Peter said it in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says, God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I know I do this a lot. I looked up that word all in the original Greek. And you know what it means? Say it with me. All. It never means a subset of humanity. It means all. Theologians don't even know what to make of this verse. God wants all to come to repentance. He's on an all-out search. And this is his mindset. It's his main agenda for planet Earth. That's that he wants to search out and find lost ones. Why? These points are connected because they have great value in his sight. You know, years ago, I, I will never forget a story I heard uh, by a fellow pastor at a conference I was at that I thought was both humorous but very, very powerful at the same time. 
And again, this is his story, not mine. He said that one day he came home to his house after, in, in the mid-afternoon after church to, to go out for a jog. And he has a routine when he gets home, and some of you might share this routine. He would get the mail from the mailbox, and as he's walking into the house, he would go through the garage, stop by the trash can, and discard mail that was obviously junk mail. And this is where it gets funny because for him, junk mail was not just flyers and coupons and things like that, but his wife's catalogs. And so he'd sit over there and he'd, he'd throw out his wife's catalog, figuring she didn't need any more stuff, you know. And, and I could just picture him doing that over there, by the, by the, throwing out his wife's catalogs. And, and he said as he was doing that one day, he ran across a flyer that read, Have You Seen Me on it? Some of you might remember these. It looks like this. It's a flyer that the post office used to send out. I don't see them as much anymore, where it shows the picture of a child on it. And uh, it's a child that's missing. And it gives the child's name and then date of birth and age. And it shows what they might look like now in an, in an age-progressed photo. It gives uh, some personal information about them, their eye color, their hair, and when they went missing and where they were from. And it's a Have You Seen Me flyer, so that if you have, you're to call this number here. And these would get sent out to, to literally hundreds of millions of people in the United States. And this pastor ran across that flyer one day, and he did with it what he did with all the other things, with the catalogs and everything else. He threw it into the trash can. And he said it was a surreal moment as it floated there down on top of all the other catalogs. It hit him at that moment how callous he had become to getting flyers like that. And then the thought that hit him was, what if that was my kid? What if that was my child who was missing? And he immediately thought there would not be enough trees to make enough paper, to make enough flyers to find my missing kid. He thought, I would take a leave from work. I would spend every waking moment, every ounce of energy, utilizing every resource that I had at my disposal, all my money, my time, my friends, my business contacts. He said, I would do anything and everything, and I would not stop until I found my missing child. He said, that would be my response if that was my kid. And my guess is that would be your response as well. And if you would have that response at all, then you're ready to try to tap into how God feels about this lost world. Because as we've already established, God has a lot of missing kids. God has a lot of people who has his eyes moving to and fro from this, on this earth that, that he wants in his kingdom. And yet they have yet to be found. They are still lost. And like you would do anything to find your kid, maybe now you can understand God. God's gonna do anything to find these lost ones. Even the lost ones, as we're going to see in a minute, that drive you crazy. Even the lost ones that are in your face. Even the lost ones that are like Howard Stern or Mick Jagger today. He, he, he is going to find them because he's on an all-out search for those that are lost. That's what Jesus is trying to show us here. That God isn't going to give up. His search is not going to end until those that he wants have responded to him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, to receive the forgiveness and the grace that can be theirs. In fact, let's do one last thing here. God is so bent on this 
This is so much the core of his plan and activity for our world. Notice with me how this story ends. And it's the third thing that we're going to note, and it's going to blow your mind here. And that is that God then throws a huge celebration when what is lost is found. This is the wrap-up to Jesus' story. Look at how he says it in verses 5 through 6. This is great. Jesus says, And when he, the shepherd, has found it, the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now, this might seem like a relatively simple way to close a story for you, but there's a lot of profundity going on here that I'm telling you would have either confused or rocked the first century audience when they first heard this story. One of the first things they would have noticed is that the shepherd finds the sheep, and instead of bringing the sheep back by a rope or taking that famous rod and staff that's in Psalm 23, what does the shepherd do? He lifts the sheep up and puts it on his shoulders, tenderly carrying it back. And did you notice where the shepherd carries it back? Now, this is important. He doesn't carry it back to the open pasture. Where did he carry it? Say it with me. Home. Now, that would have rocked them back then. Like, why, why are you taking an animal home? Again, you and I get that. We got pets. Like, you feed your dog from the table, and you take it to the groomer, and you brush its teeth, and all these silly things. But back then, they didn't do that. They didn't bring the animals in the home. They certainly wouldn't take them home. They're either in a pen or a cave or out in the open pasture. But not this guy. He takes that sheep home. And then, in what had to have been a totally weird scene, he gets his friends and his neighbors together. He invites them over for a party to celebrate the finding of one lost sheep. And again, I'm not even reading into it to tell you that in first century culture, they had to be thinking back then, well, that had to have been an anticlimactic party. I mean, it's not like you're engaged. It's not like you won the lottery. It's not like, you know, I mean, you're celebrating a sheep that you found. Again, this was just part of this man's livelihood. It was an investment. It had great value to him. Quite frankly, nobody else cared and the reality is, is that Jesus is trying to say, it is a big deal. That sheep that was lost had immense value, and now it's found, and here's the point, it's worth throwing a huge party over. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. That given the level of lostness, and given the value attached, even the value that many others don't recognize and given the fact that there was an all-out search that ensued that many were not even aware of, and given the fact that what was lost is now found and brought home, Jesus is saying that's the most incredible news to ever hit humankind. And that's the most incredible thing that we could celebrate on this earth. And the point is, God gets fired up about lost people that get found and come home. He gets so fired up about it that all of heaven throws a party. I don't want to bore you with more scriptures. I hope I never bore you with scriptures, but Matthew tells a little bit of a different story. It's the same story, but he adds some, some texture to Jesus' story here. Look at how Matthew 
kind of wraps up this story. He has Jesus saying, and if it turns out that he, the shepherd, finds it, the sheep, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. I'd submit to you that's a kind of significant more than. Give me a head nod, you guys get that. Uh, Jesus hinted at the same thing back in verse 7 of Luke 15. He tells you, he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. (laughs) Oh, we're going to step on some toes here right now. More joy over one sinner than over the 99, that's many of you, that have already come home. You gotta let that sink in, folks. I mean, God gets more excited over a lost person coming to him through faith and trust in Jesus Christ than he ever does the fact that you showed up to church today. Or the fact that you're in Bible study, or the fact that you're serving, or the fact that you raise good kids or hold down a good job or have gone to marriage conferences and saved your marriage or even gotten victory over that nagging sin that's been with you for years and now you got victory. Don't hear me wrong. Those are all good things. Amen? Say it again. Amen? Amen. Those are great things and that's God's activity in your life. Here's just what you need to know. And there's no way to argue against this theologically. God has said, I get more excited about the salvation of a lost one than anything that the saved do. Whoa. And this is why it's so dangerous when churches become holy huddles, when churches become ingrown, when churches forget, as our previous pastor Daryl said so often, we're a hospital, not a country club for saints. We're a hospital for sinners and for people to find God, or better yet, for him to find them, because that's what's really happening. And so anything that the 99 do, which is all good and fine, God says, yeah, I'm excited about that, but I'm more excited about my main agenda on planet Earth, and that's finding lost ones, and as we're going to see a lot more next week, you being a part of helping me, God says, find lost ones. I'm telling you, this is mind-blowing when you think about it, even paradigm shifting. We're going to go to the communion table here in a few minutes. I want to wrap up um, with something, and then we're going to be done, but, but it's a really good summary assertion based on Jesus' story here, and then a question that I have for you. You ready for this? So here's the summary assertion, and that is that this, meaning this story, is how God thinks and feels about this world. That's the whole reason Jesus told it. He's taken on those Pharisees and those scribes and those stodgy religious people who wouldn't hang around sinners and tax collectors, and he's saying, I'm hanging around them because that's where the action is. That's where God is most active. That's where there's more joy to be found with them than, quite frankly, with you (laughs) because heaven's going to rejoice over what happens in their lives, but he really ain't rejoicing as much about what's happening in yours, so let's be where the action is. That's what Jesus is saying here that this is how God thinks and feels about the world. Here's my question for you. Do you? I want you, I know I say this often, I want you to think that you and I are alone together. I'm your pastor, or if I don't pastor you, I'm your friend, and I'm having a cup of coffee, and I know that you're a follower of Jesus, but I would ask you, based on Luke 15, the verse seven verses, do you have the same heart 
that God has for this lost world around you. You know, I can, I can almost hear the indictment that Jesus was saying to the Pharisees and the scribes here, all the religious folks back then. I mean, it's almost like Jesus was saying, you want to know why I laugh and hang out and eat with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> because when I'm with them, I'm much closer to what God is really doing on planet Earth than when I'm with you. When I'm with, there, I'm with them, I'm much closer to, to just about ready to hear the celebration of heaven as they repent and find, and as, as they, God finds them through their repentance and faith than I am even with you. And, and Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, if you want to be where the action is, you got to grab God's heart here. And that's really the first step, gang. This series we're in is going to build one upon the other. And next week, I won't do a spoiler alert, but next week we're going to, Jesus is going to tell another story that starts to more aggressively involve you and I. <laughs> In the process. But, but please know in this first story, he's, he's not really doing that. This is all about God and the lost sheep. But here's what he does want you and I to ask. Do we have the same heart as God? I've been a Christian for 35 years. And uh, I can remember an experience I had after about seven or nine years, somewhere in there, of being a Christian that, that I'll never forget that I've been battling ever since. And I, my guess is all of us have had this experience I got saved in 1981, and I went to seminary in 86, and then I went to my first pastor in about 1989, and I was in Detroit. And there's something that happens in the first 10 years of being a Christian. C.S. Lewis calls it uh, losing your first fervor, you know, where you have that, that initial excitement where just nothing can stop you, or you're so on fire for the Lord. And, uh, and, then, and then eventually, uh, that starts to wear off a little bit, and that's okay, that's life. And, 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 and there's a danger spot when that starts to wear off because you can get placid in your walk with God. And as I found, I've also gotten in, fallen in love with the church and I'm hanging around with church people and I'm listening to Christian music and I'm not drinking as much anymore and I'm not doing all those things anymore and, and all of that and, and, and I'm living the, 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 the straight and narrow. And before I know it, I'm not really hanging out with lost people anymore because I'm now in Bible study and church and and all of that, even before I became a pastor, I found that true. And now I'm getting a little bit placid with the Lord. And here's what I found could happen. Now, maybe it's just me. I found myself getting kind of angry at the world around me. Now it happens when I watch Fox News, but forget about that. I just find myself, you know, reading the newspaper or watching TV or whatever. And, and instead of having a heart of compassion and a heart of tenderness, and sharing God's heart for an all-out search, I want to say, and forgive my French here, but this is how I've thought over the years, you know what? They're going to hell? Let them go. They kind of deserve it anyways, and they're in my face, and they're constantly doing things that they know they shouldn't do, and I gave that up years ago, and I got my act together. See how arrogant this is? I got my act together, and I'm walking the straight and narrow, and they could do so too if they choose to, but they're obviously not choosing to do that, so let them do what they want to do. Is it just me, or has any of us ever thought that before? You don't have to raise your hand, but I got you, Al. So anyways, <laughs> I think we have. And it hit me about 1989, 1990, right when I, in this terrible timing, right when I'm going into the pastorate. And you guys have met my pastor. Uh, he came this last year, Kevin, who was just an amazing individual. I served under him for nine years. And if anybody bleeds over lost people, he does. 
He serves a church in the inner city of Detroit now that is, is about a third black and a third other minorities and then about a third white. I mean, it's, it's just a very, very mixed church and, and many of them are, are just really hurting and all this and he just bleeds for lost people, even lost people that are in his face and doing terrible things. And he's always been that way. And back when I first got to that church in late 89, 90, I... Uh, I started listening to Kevin talk, and I've always been very honest with you and everybody else. And I remember walking into his office one day, and this is just confession time. I just said, dude, you got to chill out over this evangelism thing. Have you ever heard Christians do that? I, I get it from you guys all the time still now. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, I know evangelism needs to happen, but there's also discipleship, and we need to make sure we disciple people and all this. And you know, never mind the fact that we spend 95% of our budgets on church people discipling them. You know, we got to do more. And that was my mindset back then is, dude, you got to chill out a little bit on evangelism because you know, we got a lot of discipling to do of these people here. And there is some truth to that, obviously. But I'll never forget Kevin, who's always been so honest with me as a young man. He said, sounds to me like you kind of lost a heart for lost people. I said, yeah, I probably have. I said, but, but I'm a discipler and, you know, that's okay. We can't all be perfect. And he said, you need to get that heart back. And I said to him, I don't know how to do it. And his answer changed my life because he said, well, you can't change your own heart. He said, only God can do that. He said, so the only thing you really can do is pray. You need to ask, you need to ask God to give you a heart for lost people. <laughs> the reason I'm smiling is because he also said, and, and if you have the guts to ask God that, you might as well duck because he's going to give you a heart for lost people. I, I did ask God for that back in the early 90s. I said, God, restore my passion for lost people. It, bring, me, bring back my, my heart that used to be so tied to Jesus's and break my heart for this city and for these people. May not be angry at them, but may I reach out to them with truth and firmness, but love and compassion. And it took a few years, I won't kid you. If it takes a few years to get messed up, it's going to take you a few years to probably get right. But it took a few years. But spending nine years in Detroit, Kim can attest to this, God broke my heart and broke our heart for lost people. In fact, he broke it so much that I decided to become a senior pastor and start leading the charge on that end. And I don't want to make it sound too Pollyanna, guys, because there have been times over the years, I even confessed it to the Lord again this week, because I can get so insular with you guys. I can get so focused on what's going on here and da 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 that, that I tend to get lost once again. And, and I get bugged by lost people. I, I know I'm not alone there. And then I watch Fox News and I get angry. And I'm not against Fox News. I just, you know, you watch it and, and you just find yourself getting all riled. And I, same thing with CNN or MSNBC or ABC World News Tonight. I mean, all of it's the same. It just, it just brings all the crud of this world into your face. And here's my point. When all that crud gets into our face, God wants the response of Jesus. He wants us to think in the terms of the 99 and the one. And then when we see all that crud, the reason that crud is there is because they're lost. Now watch this. And the only thing that will change them is God. The only hope they have is to get saved. The only thing that will help is if God finds them. And that's the way you and I need to think. We want them just to stop doing that. I get it. But think about it. The only way they're really going to stop doing it is if they have a change of heart by finding the Lord or the Lord finding them. 
And that's the way I've begun to think over the last 27 years since that revolution began in Detroit. And it's a battle every day. When I find myself getting mad, I have to repent and say, okay, th this isn't about that. How would Jesus respond to this? Am I a Pharisee or am I on Jesus's side here? And that's what's at stake with this first story. And so all I want you to do this week in preparation for next week is two things. Ask yourself, do I have the heart of God? And just be honest with yourself. It's okay, be honest. And if you don't, have the guts to pray and ask him to give you his heart. Because he loves you. You're of great value to him. You're slightly lost right now, even if you're saved. And he wants you to be found. And he'll give you that heart. And then you'll be on his team. And I can't wait to see how God uses us when we're all on his team and how he views this world around us. In preparation for communion, let's pray. Father God, I thank you that Jesus came to this earth, uh, Lord, first and foremost, to be the atonement for our sins so that we might know you and have true forgiveness that leads us all the way to heaven, which we're going to celebrate at this table in just a minute. Uh, but then, Lord, also, Jesus came here to teach us about what the kingdom of God is about, Lord, that's now recorded in your scriptures. And I thank you for this story that he told that is so simple in one sense, but so hard-hitting in another. Thank you, God, that Jesus revealed to us that when someone is lost, they are of great value to you. And that when someone is lost, you're in an all-out search. And that when someone is lost, you celebrate greatly when they're found. May we join that level of joy, that way of seeing the lost ones around us, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.